Have you seen? There was a uh, gentleman in a hospital bed, and he was all covered with bandages. And so this guy walks over to him, and he says, um, you know, what did you do for a living? And the guy says, well, I used to be a window washer. He said, used to be? When did you change professions? He said, oh, about halfway down. <laughs> you ever notice that it doesn't matter how often a married man changes professions, changes jobs, he always has the same boss? You want one more of these or should I quit now while I'm ahead? <laughs> I got more. I can keep going. There were three fathers-to-be in a hospital waiting room, and they were waiting for their babies to be born. And the first one, uh, the, the nurse comes out to the first one and says, you've got twins. And he says, oh, great, because I'm the manager of the Minnesota Twins. A few minutes later, the nurse comes out and says to the second father, you've got triplets. He says, oh, great. I work for 3M, triplets. And so a few minutes later, the third father jumps out the window, and the nurse comes in and says, what happened to him? He says, well, that guy works for 7-Up. He's gone now. <laughs> the only other thing I want to do before we get started is uh, just shameless promotion, if I might. And uh, the flyers that you have talk about um, uh, the ministry, uh, Barry Jenkins ministry, what we're about doing. And like I said, we're just here to help. I'm just trying to be a help to the body of Christ as the Lord leads. Um, I believe that the Lord has specifically given me a ministry to men at this time, uh, in my, at this season in my life. There is a book, uh, On the Road to Glory. Um, it, if I do say so, it's, it's, it's a really good book to read. If you know somebody that, um, if you have a leadership group, you want your leadership group to read that book. If you know folks that are teetering on, uh, career decisions, you want them to read that book. Um, it's a really good book, and I say that I, I have yet to receive a penny in royalties from the book, but I think the message is more important than uh, the money, and so I'd encourage you to get it and read it. Uh, it's certainly a good read, an easy read. And so that takes care of shameless promotion. And so I'll just talk for a few minutes about myself. And incidentally, if, you, if you're following what I'm doing, I took care of the worship and then the shameless promotions. And then I have an introduction, a testimony, and then a message. So you know right where we are right now, and you can just, uh, you know, turn your watch around and forget about it because I'm yours for a little while. Amen. Uh, introduction. My name is uh, Barry Jenkins, and I uh, start off with reading the brochure. Uh, I've got uh, just a little under a quarter of a century. Actually, in putting together the brochure, I hadn't realized it had been that long, uh, but almost a quarter of a century in ministry leadership service. Now, the actual time doesn't run linear, and I'll tell you why. I want to share something with you, if I might, for a moment. And that is that uh, when I started out in, in in ministry after being saved, after a while I started serving as part of a worship team for a church called Household of Faith in uh, Eagle Rock, California. And um, I'm serving in ministry leadership as part of the worship team there. And then went through just a, a horrible, horrible, after a couple of years, a horrible divorce. And... Uh, and uh, after that, it just uh, had a, a period of time where it just didn't uh, get involved with ministry at all. It just kind of just stayed out of it for a period of time, a number of years. And so there's a lapse in time there. Then picked back up, um, met my wife, Cosette. We got married. And um, as a matter of fact, I put a pin in that right there. I want to backtrack a little bit. I shared with Pastor Allen. You'll probably see me refer to my notes a little more today. If you do that, bear with me. Uh, because the, uh, I just got word today that the ex-wife and his arrangements to be made. So I take time in preparation with you guys and ask you to bear with me and forgive me. The, the message is in there, but I might have to read the notes a little bit to get it out. And so um, uh, that's all okay. But I, I mentioned I'll have to say uh, by way of introduction and, and what my experience has been in the ministry that um, over the course of those years, for most of that time, I was bivocational. I was one of the uh, uh, designers of the uh, first uh, operational stealth aircraft, the uh, F-117. Uh, from there, I went to work on the F-22, and I spent a lot of time at Lockheed. And then from there, um, got the computer bug. I don't know about 
some of you guys, but like when the first PC came out, I mean, I just had to have one of these things, and I, you know, blew mine up several times. Next thing you know, I was building them for friends. Cross-trained in the computer industry, ended up having a computer business for a number of years, and, and so I've had a pretty exciting career. And I won't tell you all about it, just get the book. It, it goes more into detail. Other than the ministry experience, um, there, um, I became chairman of the board for one of the largest churches in the Antelope Valley region of Los Angeles. And the chairman of the board of trustees, I served as a deacon, and then ran for my call from the Lord for a number of years. And eventually succumbed to that call, and I call that the Jacob experience. And I find that many pastors have a similar experience where they have that one last rock, one last uh, um, um, wrestle with the Lord where their life is altered. It's not going to be the same, and things are different. Jacob had that last wrestle with the Lord. He got to kind of like to do things his own way, right? And even as I accepted my call to ministry, um, I like to kind of do things my own way. I had my milestone charts laid out, and I knew how the church was going to be successful in three years, and I was going to tell God how he was going to do it. And I knew how I was going to do it because I served in management, and I, you know, I knew how to get things done. I figured if, if God called me, it must be because of all my experience, right? I later come to find out he doesn't want your ability. He wants your availability, right? And so anyway, there's a reason I'm going into all of this. It was right about the time that I accepted my call to ministry, and I was given a church to pastor. And the church had just become a four-square chartered church that I took ill. And, you know, it wasn't those things, one of those things where you got over it right away. It was uh, one of those things where you just kept getting sicker and sicker and you say, wow, you know, I'm waiting for this thing to, to get over, but it just didn't happen. And uh, before you know it, I was diagnosed with pneumonia, and then the pneumonia didn't go away right away. It, it just kind of lingered on, and a year later, I'm still fighting symptoms of pneumonia. And then uh, my wife and I were trying to get diagnosis. We were trying to find out what was going on. The doctors were at a loss. They could see that there was a, a problem, but they couldn't tell me what it was. And then some solid diagnosis began to come in. And I was at the doctor. I was alone. I was at the doctor. And he said, sit down, I want to talk to you. I'm like, me? Okay. I'm sitting down. He says, you know, he explained that I had lung disease. And he explained that, that it wasn't good. And at best, maybe we can get it stabilized so that the lungs don't continue to deteriorate. But he said, we can't give you another set of lungs. And what you've got is the way it is. And, uh, I suggest you go home to get your affairs in order. I mean... I thought it was surreal. I thought he was talking to somebody else. And so I'm looking around, and I'm the only one else there. You know? And so um, I called my wife, and I explained to Cosette, and she didn't know what this disease was, and she went and looked it up. And and so, uh, you know, I'm waiting for her to come home from work, and I'm headed home from work. And, I mean, those are some, that's some long hours. You know, you're thinking about, well, what do you say to your spouse? You know, what, what have you really got to say? You've just been handed this news, and you, you don't know how she's going to react. You don't know how you're going to react. And so I started putting together all of these plays in my mind, you know, going over a playbook of how, you know, this thing is going to play out. What am I going to say? And so I had this speech, you know, I'm all ready to say, well, you know, baby, um, I'm not afraid to die, and you need to be encouraged. I know the Lord's going to take care of you, and I trust him, and, and you know, and, and I'm looking for something out of this, right? I'm looking for... You know, I mean, we're all guys here. I'm looking to have, you know, hold on to her and have a big cry myself. I mean, I've just been hearing this news, and um, I literally was struggling to breathe every moment of my life. And I didn't know when or if I was going to wake up if I fell asleep because breathing was that difficult. And so it was in that environment that something happened in my life, that something happened that changed in my life forever, and I believe the Lord has set me from that day on a mission, and part of that mission is to be here with you today. I'm ready to give my wife this speech. I'm ready for my helpmate to be my comforter at that moment. I mean, can any of you relate to that? I mean, you know, you, you know it, by all accounts, it didn't look like I had 
much time at all, and I'm, I'm thinking at least you know I can hold on to my wife and have a good cry about this. You know, is anybody looking at me like I'm a wimp because I admit it? I wanted to have a good cry. <laughs> you know, you do that I'll get the mic and I'll just keep talking. Cosette came home, and she was in tears, and she walked through the door, and she was really broken up. And I said, well, you know, let me go and you know, do the speech, and let me go and grab her and hold her, and let me go get, get this done. And I put it in my mind. And so I, I, come, I come around her, and I grab her, and I hold on to her, and I said, baby, don't cry. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. I'm, I'm ready to go meet the Lord. And she looked at me, and she said, You? This isn't about you. It's not? She says, You have accomplished everything you set out to do in your life, and if you die now, my hopes of having children die with you. And that's not fair. There's not enough time to start over. We've been having, trying to have children at that point. Uh, 13, 14 years. And to be honest with you, my attitude, quite frankly, was, you know, hey, I accomplished the things I set out to do. If that's your goal, then you take your goal and you run with it, you know? I, you know, I know that, we're all fellas, I know there's no blanks here, right? I mean, you know, I have two kids, and, and I, I know I'm not the problem, and my attitude was that if she wanted to have children that bad, then she needed to take leave. And really, quite honestly, there was a part of me that felt that uh, I didn't—I I didn't know if I wanted to bring two more children into the world. You know, I was probably at that point still um, hurting a little bit from a bad, failed marriage, and I just made up my point at some time that uh, breakup that you know I was afraid to bring more children. I mean, because what if the marriage doesn't hold up? You know, then I've got to deal with that. And so that was something I had to deal with. And so here I am in the midst of this, wanting the comfort of my wife. And, and need. I mean, I've got handed the, the worst news of my life, and it's, it's already hard to deal with. And then my wife would hurt telling me this, that it's not about you. I mean, it was like getting pounded in the chest. I mean that was that was hard. I mean it was it was a weight and a pain on top of the weight and the pain I was already shouldering. Can anybody relate to that? I, I, uh, I, I don't remember how long. This was about uh, probably about a good eight nine years ago. <coughs> um, matter of fact, it, it was year two thousand. And so you do the math. So um, I went before the Lord. I was in pain, and I went before the Lord, and I said, "Lord, I need comfort. I, this isn't fair. My helpmate is not here to comfort me. You know what? What's her problem?" And you know what? The Lord said to me, He was very clear. And you know, if any of you had times, and I'll be honest, when you know that you've clearly heard from the Lord, if that's you, raise your hand. I mean. You know, times when you know there's no bones about it. You've heard the Lord speak to you. And the Lord spoke to me in that pain. And you know what he said? He said, she's right. He said to me, he said, you have failed to initiate life in your wife's world. And your physical inability to have children is a reflection of your spiritual condition. And then he went on to minister some things to me that, that, that I never thought of. And it, there were things that made me think about the way I thought about manhood, the way I thought about uh, the role of a woman and a man in a relationship, the way I thought about my approach to life, the way I thought about the, uh, my strength, and my purpose, my life, my mind. And these all uh, became uh, seeds, so to speak, of a message that the Lord was building inside of me. And as a matter of fact, right after he, he ministered that to me, I repented. And I said, Lord, I'm going to make um, a promise to you. I made a promise to the Lord that day. I said, I'm going to have a child with my wife. Now, you got to hear this, because the decision I made was made by faith, because it's a very frightening proposition. I'm just going to be honest, Christian or not. It's a frightening proposition to think about bringing children into the world, when you don't know if you're going to live very long. And I said, nevertheless, Lord, I'm going to do this by faith. I'm going to bring life to my wife's promise 
or I'm going to die in the process. But whatever breath I have left, I'm going to put into her purpose and not mine. Joseph uh, just turned six years old. And shortly after he was born, I was sitting there, I was holding him on the sofa. It was about, he was about uh, a little over a year old, and I looked at my wife, and I, and I, and I thought, wow, my God, I, I was missing out on this. <laughs> you know, failing to pour my life into my wife's purpose was causing me to miss out on my own purpose. Anybody with me? And so I looked at her and I said, you want to do it again? And she said, yeah, okay. And so we did it again. And Jonathan will be uh, four years old next month. And so we did it again. And so their life, when I was thinking all along that it was her that was holding up my children coming, our children coming, it was really me that was holding that up. Anybody following Okay. Turn to somebody and say, he's talking to you tonight. All right. Did you guys have enough? I mean, can we just wrap it up here? You, so we keep going. That's just a testimony. We haven't gotten into the message yet. Oh, you're done with kids. Oh, I thought he's... Somebody told me they walk out if they don't like the preacher, so I thought maybe he was saying it. Praise God. Do you guys love me? You guys love me so far? All right. So far. All right, now we'll get into the message. And the message tonight comes out of a book that was born in that instant. And there was a message that was given to me that has taken many years to, to, to grapple with, to understand, to, to pen, to put down. And one thing has been very clear to me that the Lord wants me to write this message. And as a matter of fact, the Lord confirmed this message about a year later. I was sitting in at a school of pastoral nurture with uh, Dr. Jack Hayford, and he went down. And he, and he gave a message that just hit all the highlights that the Lord gave me that night. And it was a confirmation that, yes, I did hear from the Lord, and then... Pastor Jack went on to talk about how he feels about people that should write, and I knew that the Lord was telling me to write. As a matter of fact, last year about this time, um, you know, honestly, I was feeling a little discouragement. My first book had hit the streets, and it didn't sell a million copies in the first couple of months, you know? And so I'm thinking, well, maybe the Lord really doesn't want me to write. And I was at the Foursquare Convention last May, and I was sitting uh, pretty much down to the front, and there's 4,000 pastors from all over the world. I know None of the people I'm sitting around, I know none of the people that are right there. There was a few here and there that I knew, but they weren't anywhere close. And after we had prayer, you know Pastor Jack Hayford, you don't get out, away from him without doing a prayer circle. And so after the conference, we're doing these prayer circles, and then we're dismissed. And the man that was sitting next to me, uh, the pastor minister that was sitting next to me, he walks away and then walks back over, and he comes over to me and says, God told me that I have to pray for you some more, and there's something i got to tell you. You know, I mean, what do you think when somebody tells you that, you know? Right, that's what I thought. But he came over and he said, um, the scripture says, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men, I write to you children. And now the Lord's saying that you're being handed that baton and it's your turn to write. You have to write to them. And he prayed for me and he walked away. And I, I, I knew, okay, Lord, yes, I, I get it. So my uh, frustration at the time had nothing to do with the Lord's purpose in me. He wanted me to get this information out. And, and tonight, I want to share from one of the chapters that's called My Purpose, and it has nothing to do with me in particular, but my meaning men. And I believe that what the Lord is saying is that he wants us to take a look at different things in our life. There are 34 chapters in this book. There are 34 things that he wants us uh, as men today. It's a, it's a now message, and he wants us to take a look, to do an inventory, a self-inventory, so to speak, to, to look at how we view things in our life. And this thing that I want to share with you tonight is to ask you uh, to, to take a look at how you view your purpose. Have you ever gone somewhere and you just knew that you were in a place that you fit in? I mean, you just knew, you, you just had this sense that there was a sense that I belong here. You know, this is a place I was born to be. I fit in. And, and then have you ever gone somewhere where you just knew that you just didn't fit in? And you just felt out of place, right? All of us have a purpose, and, and often our purpose, it can elude us. It can be evasive. And I think that we spend our lives trying to find that purpose. But 
one thing is is clear from Scripture that unless we find the purpose that God has given each one of us individually, specifically, uniquely, then we're just missing it. We can mask it up, we can cover it up, we can do a lot of things with it. But unless it is the purpose that God has for us, we're never going to find fulfillment. And not only aren't we going to find fulfillment, but it's going to cause our world to suffer. Are you following me? There'll be something that's missing in our world, and our world will inherently understand when we have found our purpose. Why? Because our world will start to come to life. Our purpose will begin to cause our world to have life. First thing we have to do in order to find our purpose, and you guys should know this, is you got to realize you can't do it alone. I think that's something that's hard for us as men. We have to stop and ask for direction, right? I remember one time I was, I was driving down to the Queen Mary for a luncheon, and there was a group of cars, and we just were driving around a circle. We couldn't find the entrance, and we were like playing follow the leader, and this went on for, gosh, it had to be half an hour or so, 20 minutes, half an hour. And then finally, one guy pulls up next door to me, and he lowers his window, and I'm like, what's he loading his window for? And he, he shouts, don't you know where I'm going? <laughs> you know, we're all just following each other. We're all lost, and nobody wanted to be the first to ask for direction. But that's the first thing we have to do is admit that we can't find our purpose without God. We're going to have to get close enough to Him to where we can begin to understand our purpose. Um, I want to I want to illustrate something. I want to bring an illustration. How many of you are musicians here? Do we have any musicians, guitar players? Do you have a guitar player? I, I want to illustrate. I want to bring an illustration. I throw these illustrations in. This is uh, just just a part where it just helps me to convey a point to you. So bear with me during this illustration. It was um, early 1980s, and there was a new instrument coming to bear that was just coming into its own. It was the synthesizer. It had been around for 20 or something years, and Herbie Hancock had done some work with the synthesizer. But it, by 1980, it was starting to come into its own, and and uh, it was about to revolutionize the way that music was being done. Any of you that are into music can relate to that. I don't know. If you, how many of you listen to music? <clears throat> We're all pretty much listen to music. How many of you are uh, at least 50 years old? <laughs> Most of us. So you can probably relate to what I'm saying. You remember the days when before the synthesizer. You remember those days. Music was different. Yeah. And so music has somehow changed. It's still music, but there's, there's some, I thought I turned it off. <laughs> I'm going to have to, excuse me. Um, Pastor, will you turn it off for me? Um, and so there was something different about the music. And, and in 1980, there was a movie that came out that showed a, a famed uh, music school going through that transition and dealing with the, 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 uh, the new instrument. Anybody remember that movie? It was, it was called Fame. And it was a scene from that movie that, that I remember, and it's really applicable, not that, not that uh, anything other than that, that lesson really is relevant to today's message and relevant to us, I believe, as men today, relevant to our society today. Um, the student that was playing the, the synthesizer, they opened this new curriculum for the synthesizer. They're going over this piece with the professor, and this, the student is saying, well, you know, uh, they're talking about Beethoven. And the student says, Beethoven wouldn't do it like this today. And then the, t the professor says, well, enlighten us. He says, all that Beethoven would need is a, a good synthesizer and enough power, and, and he can do this all by himself. And so the professor says, oh, you mean he can play this all by himself, huh? And the student says, yeah. And the professor said, that's not music. That's masturbation. I'm not saying this to be funny, but I am saying this to illustrate. It wasn't an issue between old and young, new and not so new. It was an issue that had to do with the fact that prior to that, music was considered one place where people came together corporately and brought their talents to bear one breath in unison to make melody. And that was changing, and his teacher saw that. And there's something different. I asked you, if those of you that remember music before the synthesizer, you said, yes, there was something different. The guitar players that I talked to that used to, that, that played guitar, they tell me that, you know, nothing beats an old Fender Rhodes with the tubes in it. You know, these, 
these uh, uh, um, um, solid state amplifiers just don't give the same warmth, the same feel that the old Fender Rhodes gave. And so there's something to that. When you don't have the many breaths together, working together in concert, there's something different about the music. It's a monotone, synthetic music. It's not really, in my opinion, that's my opinion. You can stone me if you want when we're done, but in my opinion, it's just not music anymore. That's just the way I feel about it. There was a fulfillment that was embodied in the music. There was a fulfillment that came to bear as, as, to, as together the various musicians worked towards a common sense of purpose. They were all making melody together. The music was different, and that sense of fulfillment was shared by the listeners. It wasn't just the musicians that felt that or sensed that. And today, you have a music whereby one person sits down, and that one person is the only person putting input into the music. You may be more instruments in the synthesizer than was in the, the average musical piece that was played, but it's still one point of view. And every note that's played is that one point, that singular point of view. And so the result now is a solo synthetic kind of music. Turn to somebody and say, I think I'm getting this. Praise God. Regardless of, of how well it imitates the original, solo synthetic music is missing something. It's lacking something. There's times when going solo is appropriate. Uh, there's times when one lone, vo lone, lone excuse me, voice in the crowd, it can be a beacon to eliminate and give focus to others. But having said that, the use of technology today has caused a shifting of a pendulum in such a way that it's not necessarily one lone voice anymore in the crowd, but we're becoming isolated voices of increasingly lesser significance. Anybody called the bank lately? Have you have you got a live person? Anybody tried to get customer support at anything lately? We're becoming more and more synthetic, more and more isolated, more and more uh, I like to use the word monotone. We're, we're separated from the relationship that we used to have to have, the interaction that we used to have to have with each other in order to go through our daily business. And why is that so important? And what does that have to do with my purpose? Because God has created us in such a way that in order for us to find our purpose, we have to have interaction with one another. Are you following me? Okay. If I have it alone, then I don't have it. One of the fundamental wonders given to us by God, fundamental fundamental wonders, is the ability to relate or the ability to have a relationship. And at the most basic level, when boys meet girls and the spark flies and, and they uh, become married and then there's an exchange of passion between the two and in that exchange, life is passed from the man to the woman and that life ultimately is nurtured in a woman and it comes forth and it clings to the one at birth did. I always find it interesting that, you know, the new babies don't cling to their dad. They cling to the mom. But wait a minute, you came from me. You're the life that came from me, but you don't cling to me, you cling to her. Anyway, that's another message. That life-giving process is not a monotone, synthetic process. It is a symphony and it's intended to be played not by a synthesizer, but it's intended to be played in terms of a relationship as we relate to one another, and in that relation, we're all coming to a place of mutual fulfillment, mutual purpose, and not self-gratification. You guys got real quiet on me. Well, praise God, maybe, maybe somebody's getting this. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you're going to get this on the way home. <laughs> That process of having children, it's an example to us. It's an example given to us by God of, of, of the whole process of, of God saying that I want it to be a symphony. I want it to be a group. It's not supposed to be, uh, in order for life to propagate, in order for there to be an infusion of life in your world, it's going to take some cooperation here. 
You with me? Raise, raise, wait a minute. With me. Okay. That example that God gives us, it's not a temporary fulfillment. But if, it, if it's done right at the right time, in the right way, then it usually results with life being added to our world. And not just a personal fulfillment, but we added a life to our world. I want to share something with you. And, you know, I always take the risk of sharing something really personal, but I'll go ahead and do this because it, it's, it's important that I share this with you, and it has to do with the message, and I don't know of any other way to illustrate this point. And so bear with me. I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, be weird or anything. I'm just trying to say this is a fact that, that has happened. And uh, I believe my wife is okay with me sharing this with you. If I didn't believe she was, I wouldn't be sharing it. Uh, during those days, uh, I believe it was about, at that point, about 13 years or so, that we were barren, trying to have children. We went to many specialists, doctors, um, what do they call them? Endocrinologists, you know, people with the fancy PhD, MD, HD, I don't know. They had a couple of N's and D's and whatever. They would have us fill out one by one. They would have us fill out all this paperwork, and you know, an hour's worth of paperwork you're filling out, and, and all of this stuff, and you fill it out and you hand it in. And then comes the interview after they've read all of the paperwork you filled out. And you're sitting down with the doctor one by one, and here comes the question. The first doctor, I'll never forget that asked us this question. I thought this was crazy, and I was about to get up and walk out. I thought it, I took it, it was offensive. I took it as being offensive, but then she went on to explain, and she said, "I have to ask you this question." And incidentally, each doctor asked this question. But she said, when you guys are intimate, do you plateau together or not? She said, we don't understand it medically, but the couples that do, it's like 90% greater probability of them being able to have a child than the couples that don't. It's a very small amount. Uh, in there. And so if you're trying to have children, she said, you, you got to start making it work. Are you following me? Okay. And so there's many ways, brothers, to derive gratification. There's many ways, even when you're married. But a linear, you know, one at a time deal, if the goal is to produce life in your world, it's not going to happen in the same way that a mutual fulfilling experience is going to happen. Are you following me? And so that life itself supports the fact here that therein lies a problem. It's a, that, that's a problem with masturbation. It produces more in the world. It's just self-fulfilling. And God didn't put us here to be all self-fulfilling men. He put us here to be men that cause something to happen in our world, that cause life to be initiated in the world around us. Somebody say, keep going. I'm glad you said that. Let's look at God's example. Um, God could have chosen. He could have chosen a synthetic route, a solo synthetic route to have his own fulfillment. He certainly doesn't need you and me to be fulfilled. He's God. He's self-existent. Omnipresent. He's the all in all. He doesn't need us, but he chose, he chose that we will have fulfillment together with him. He chose that. So in other words, he's concerned about you and me and our fulfillment. Do you see that? In that mutual fulfillment between us and God, there comes a release of life from Him that works through us, and because we give birth to it as men, that life begins to cling to us. And it's called our purpose. Are you following me? True spirituality is not attained synthetically, antiseptically, or singularly. If it's only self-fulfilling, it will never reach the intensity of God's purpose in you. If the only one that's being fulfilled in your game plan, fellas, 
is you, then you're cutting yourself short. Amen? Amen. In Luke chapter 10, we find examples. Now, I want to I talk about the religious because, um, you know, we can, we, can, we can move into the religious area now and become... Um, I passed out like to use this term once. It's an old Baptist term, right? So heaven bound that we're no earthly good, right? And so we have to be careful of that as men. In Luke chapter 10, we find examples of religious leaders who were more concerned with their own gratification than their responsibility to impart life to their world. Certain men fell among thieves, Jesus said, but the priests and the Levites basically were too busy. You know, maybe there was a sermon to prepare. Maybe there was, you know, um, you know, the church needed some cleaning. You know, maybe there was something up. Maybe there was a, a luncheon of pastors going on, and the, and the priest and the Levite didn't have time. But whatever it is, they did, they they were too busy. In Mark chapter twelve, Sadducees come to come to Jesus, and they say, "Teacher, the law says that if a man dies." I find that very interesting. These are people that knew the law. They knew the law. They were very well versed in it. They knew the law so well that they were willing to tell Jesus, Jesus, here's what the Bible says. They knew it. But Jesus replied simply, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God? You see here, though they could quote the Scriptures verbatim, their understanding, I want you to catch this, their understanding of the Scripture and the law applied only to their own sense of purpose. Only to add, it made them feel good in their little comfort zone. It was an issue that made them feel uncomfortable. Jesus, what about this? He says, you really don't know the Scriptures. How many times do we do that? How many times do we, do we look at Scripture and we try, try to derive from it a meaning that, that suits us? Only to find out later that's really not the heart of God, not not really where He's at right now. And so, in the end, their religion was not producing anything, but something that was solo synthetic. That's a new term. I think I'm going to call Webster's and see if that's that's something I can get out of the dictionary. Solo synthetic. I like that. In James chapter one verse twenty-seven, the scripture says, "Pure and undefiled religion is this." To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's a pattern that God has. There's a pattern in the scriptures that, that we've already outlined here. There's a pattern in such that the greatest impartation of life comes as we derive a sense of purpose that goes on uh, far beyond our own immediate gratification and begins to concern itself with the gratification of the world around us. Are you following me? Praise God. Our true God-given purpose, it can't be masked by religious actions, by religious ritual. Our true God-given purpose is going to be seen when we are releasing the God-given purpose in those around us. So what's God's purpose to me? What's God? Turn to somebody and say, what's God, God's purpose to me? Why don't you turn to somebody else and say, well, what's God's purpose for me? Pastor, I got, I got a way that I do things. When they don't talk up, then I assume that, that um, they want me to talk longer. And so I just add a little bit to the sermon. <laughs> somebody say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They're getting it. I think they're getting it now. Praise God. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If if my sense of purpose has a selfish motive, then my world will suffer neglect. It will begin to erode and will begin to ask why. I've been married now to Cosette for 22 years, and, and I think 99.9% of the time, I mean, we've all had you know, marital issues, things that we work through. I'm not going to call it a spat because I'm the preacher today, and, you know, they're just marital issues, you know. 99.9% of the time, I can trace the core of the problem back to some place where I was being selfish. 99.9. 9. 
you know, even though that, that point of a percent of hertz is a real big thing, you know. <laughs> so I venture to say it's probably more like 100% of the time. It's, it's some area of life where I was not being attentive to something that she needed. And I was failing to make something in her world come alive. How do you view? How do you view the people in your world? Are they there just to get you to your purpose? Is your wife, your employees, fellow church members, the, your children, are they there just to make things right for you? How do you view the people in your world? Do you view them rather in terms of your responsibility? Somebody say Responsibility. Let me let me put a pin in that right here for a second. I'm going to share something that that I don't know if any of you have ever heard it like this before, but something that the Lord shared with me that that time when He said you're failing to impart life in the world, and He He said to me, He said, once you look at the difference, we we can call it medical terms what you want, but this is the way the Lord shared it with me. So once you look at the difference between a man's seed and a woman's seed, where's the life? Man's seed. The man's seed alone. A woman's seed has no life in it. It has all the potential for life, but it will not live unless the living seed that comes from the man infects it and causes it to multiply and divide. He said, that's it spiritually. Spiritually, the life in your relationship has got to come from you. It takes a man to initiate life in his world. So if there's deadness in your life, if there's a dead area in your life, it's because somewhere, somewhere, you have failed to initiate life in your world. You've failed. God put us here to cultivate this earth, to bring life to it, to cause it to come to order. And it doesn't happen as long as we're yelling at it, going, live, live, do what I back to my notes a little bit right now. God intended our lives to be a symphony, a concerted breath that becomes a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. And it's within that context that, that, that we make melody in our hearts and our lives become a rhythm working together for each of our individual purposes. And that purpose, uniquely, individually and collectively, is to bring life into our world. And it's important. How many of you have had multiple children? Most of you. And so you know what it's like when your kids just won't play nice together. Right? Because you can imagine how God's heart must feel when we don't play nice together, when one just wants to have his way. You know, one of my sons, I, I, a beautiful boy, God has blessed the earth with these two dear children. One of them likes to play video games, and the other one doesn't get to play. Hey, come on, I want to play a two-player game. Play a two-player game. No! Play a two-player game! And so one is being fulfilled, and the other one is being left out. So what do you think God's heart is when, when he looks at us and we're saying, you know, um, you know, I've got my new Mercedes-Benz, and I've got this, and I've got that, but your wife is going home in tears at night because her world is dying, or your children are suffering, or, you, or your family somehow, or your, your neighborhood is, is, is hurting. I'm not saying you go home and, and give all your stuff away, but I'm telling you that you got to find a way to release your life into your world, even at your own expense. I want you to think about that for a moment. Turn with me while you're thinking about that to Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. God has given us a blueprint for living, and by studying His plan, we come into an intimate knowledge of the One who created us. And between the pages of His words are His concerto. He wants us to play this thing like a symphony. He wants us to be able to get together and play it together. He didn't even have to leave us His word. He could have said, everybody else go off, get your voicemail boxes set up, 
you know, get the computers together. We don't even have to, to, to go to the store half the time anymore. We just get online, get our website together, and we're in the solo synthetic world again. We don't want to interact with many people. They said this last year that there was a record number of people buying things online on the Internet, so people are not even going out to, you know, say how to do it anymore. They're just dealing in an isolated little world. And not, they're not exchanging with one another the way they used to. It's something that God wants from us. He wants relationships. He wants us to understand the nature of our relationship together. And it's something that takes humility, open-mindedness, maturity, and a willingness to come out of ourselves and draw near to God's people. It also means being able to stop and ask God for direction. You know, by nature, you know, we, we want people that see us as men, to see us as strong and, and able. And, we don't, you know, asking direction might put us in a different light. But how many of you know that the scripture says pride goes before a fall? How do you look before destruction? Something to that effect, right? Praise God. Matthew 20 and 25, I had you turn there. I'm going to do it on time. Okay. Matthew 20, 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you see how life comes when a man sees his purpose in terms of surrendering himself in order that his world will live. Are you following me? Jesus Christ came for that. I mean, he came so that we can all have a renewed sense of purpose. He came and he, he, he went all the way to the cross with it. He says, you know what? I am laying my life down because in the process of me surrendering my rights, I mean, he, he could have come down and said, you know what? Paul, uh, um, excuse me, um, um, uh, Peter and, and uh, Andrew and Thomas, come here, do this, do that, do this, do that. He could have stayed up on his own. He didn't have to go to the call. But he was giving us an example of leadership. Not just leadership, but more specifically male leadership. Because there's something that happens when a man lays down his life. The Bible says, no greater love has any man than this, has anyone, excuse me, than this, than to lay down his life for his friend. We tell our wives all the time, I love you, I love you. And then we don't understand when she says, I don't believe you, I don't believe you. Because out of one side, we're telling them, I love you. And out of the other side, we're saying, now shut up and do what I say. Right? And we're not willing to lay our lives down in order that their purpose A true leader, a true leader is going to reign in humility. He's not going to parade himself. He's not going to... He, and, and you know what, uh, uh, brethren? People will, will sense whether or not your leadership is godly. They'll sense it when they see you and your ability to submit. They're not going to see it in your ability to reign over them. They're not going to see it in your ability to strong arm them. They're not going to see it. You know, we can, we can have the visa card, the bank account, the house, the job. They're not going to see it in all of that, brother. They're only going to see it when we go to our pastor and we say, yes, sir, is there anything I can do to help? When we lead them to church, when they see our ability to humble ourselves, then they'll say, now that's a leader I can follow. Are you with me? If you still love me, wave at me. Praise God. I'm getting a lot of love today. Pride short circuits our leadership. And 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 it can never equip us for gain. It can never make us better. Pride can only take away. I'm going to get ready to close now. Somebody say amen. amen. Pride has many disguises. Many disguises. One of the disguises that we like to put on pride is nobility. Right? 
you know, we come and, and there's things going on and then we, we, we make a noble proposition, a noble statement, and people think of us and, wow, you know, this, this person's really noble. I mean, you know, nobles tend to uh, arise to the top in difficult situations and they tend to become nobles and they, and they, and they, you know, gain power and authority during hard times. Correct? In the midst of a dysfunctional situation environment, there's likely to be a noble that rises up. But that person's purpose is only going to be fulfilled as long as the dysfunction continues. Are you following me? Maybe you're not following me. Let me, let me try to give some examples. Try to give some examples. Haman. Haman was only going to be successful as long as the Jews were kept down. Right? Rose up in the middle of a dysfunctional situation, in the middle of a people being denied their purpose, this man rises up, and the only way he sees himself as maintaining some kind of control and authority is to keep them oppressed. The noble. Right? It was the nobles that were writing letters to Sambalot's assistants to try to keep Nehemiah from fulfilling his purpose. Nobility is not the answer. It's a masquerade. It's, it's a facade. It's, it's not real. As long as it comes at the price of somebody else's purpose. There's many things we can do that sound noble. You know, I'll step in here, you know. There's many things we can do that sound noble, but when it comes at the price of somebody else's purpose, then that's not God's plan. The, other, the last thing I want to talk about real quick, and I'll finish up with this, um, I think, is who hasn't had the experience of somebody trying to frustrate the purpose? Have you ever had a sense that you're finally finding your purpose and next thing you know these obstacles come in your way? Right? Or people, you know, the naysayers come and you can't do that. No, you? Oh, you know? Has this just happened to me? Has it happened to any of you? The naysayers, they come in and try to frustrate the purpose like like Nehemiah's naysayers, like uh, um, um, the Dacian, I call them the Dacian committee that tried to frustrate Moses. Right? So this has happened. You've you, gone through it. There's a tendency that we have, for whatever reason, to think that because difficult times come, that somehow it must be God telling us that we're on the wrong track. And oftentimes, when a man is ready to walk into his purpose, the naysayers so discourage him that he chooses to go a different way. And he walks away from that very thing that he's supposed to walk into. But I'm here to encourage you tonight and let you know that God's purpose in you is going to go forward no matter what the naysayers say or do. God's purpose is going to go through it. God's, God's purpose was not stopped because of the naysayers, because of the Hanans, because of the Dayton Committee, because of the Sandblock. God's purpose was not stopped. And his purpose is not going to be stopped. If anything, you need to be encouraged because when, when the nobles rise up and the naysayers begin to that come at you, it's most likely it's an indication that you're on the right track. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, are you talking to me? Praise God. And so what do you do when the naysayers come and your, your purpose, you feel your purpose is being frustrated? Then it's time to pray and it's time to humble yourself. Listen, some people are going to accept the God-given purpose in you the minute they see it. They'll quicken and they'll go, wow, that's, I can see that in you. And some people won't be convinced until they start seeing things change. But some people don't want to change. And so they're just going to oppose you. But even in that, there's still an opportunity for you to win the hearts of the skeptics through your humility. When they see that they can kick the tires and a tire doesn't go flat, they might buy the car. Are you following me? It's only through humility. Somebody say humility. That's God's heart. That's God's heart towards us. And when we walk there, then his purpose begins to become clear. When we're walking in such a manner of humility that our focus is not on our individual self-aggrandizement or our own a sense of self-fulfillment. Now, we can make that all into what we want to. We can say, oh, honey, dear, life is going to be good for you as long as you take care of me. Come on, fellas. We could say, you know, 
family, if you take care of me first, then it's going to be better. But if, if you don't do what I need, then, then everything's going to be worse for you. We can, we can play around with this all day long. We can make it into something else. But that's not the Scripture. The Scripture says that you got to die to yourself first. Over there in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, uh, somewhere around verse 21, 2, 3, somewhere, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself to her that he might cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. He wants us to love our wives as he loved the church. Well, how did he do it? He didn't beat her in a submission. He didn't drag her by the hair and sit her on the lawnmower. Hello? Nobody here does that, I know. California, I've never seen a woman mow a lawn. But man, I drive through Texas and women mow lawns here. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Maybe they enjoy it. Maybe they feel a sense of purpose in that. I, I don't know. I'm, if I'm meddling, just say, you're meddling now. Okay. okay. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> They're just trying to get a 10. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Finding our purpose means moving from a place of pride and self-centeredness and moving into a position of God-centeredness. How would Jesus handle it? We see his example. He didn't force anybody to do anything. All he did was surrender himself. He gave. It caused life to come around him. It takes becoming a man uh, after God's own heart. And from that vantage point, that's where we can reach our potential. All of us have promise. All of us have promise. Regardless of your purpose uniquely, there's a common purpose that we all have as men. God built us that way. I don't care if it's fair. Life is not 50-50. Your marriage is not 50-50. Because in the end, God is going to hold you as men accountable for your marriages. He's going to hold you accountable for the life that failed to initiate in the world. Well, God, I didn't have my purpose. I gave you potential. I put life in you. I gave you the ability to bring life to your world. You know, some things just won't happen until a man touches it. So, man, that's what was happening in my life with my wife. And it wasn't, believe me, we weren't having kids for lack of, not having kids for lack of trying. You know what I'm saying? But I didn't put my heart, my purpose into my wife's plan and her vision. You know, I realized that day that I had never up to that point prayed with my wife that we can have children. I just hadn't done it. Abraham's prayer caused the whole town to become fertile. I hadn't even prayed for my wife that she can have children. In order for life to come your will, gentlemen, uh, I'll close with this. It takes a man to give his world life. I, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to do something. Just, just I'm, Some of you are ready to go to sleep anyway, that's fine. Just close your eyes and you can hold your head down for a minute. And there's nobody looking. There's nobody looking. If there's an area of your life that has risen itself against the life in others, if there's an area of your life that you need to die to in order that your life may give life to others, why don't you just raise your hand and I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to ask the Lord for renewal in your life, for a renewed sense of purpose. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your honesty. That there's an area in your life that needs to come alive. And the Lord convicted you during this message that there's something about your life that needs to pour into the life somewhere else than that's you. And Father, I thank you for those brothers. I thank you for the honesty. I thank you for the message that you've given. I pray now, Lord, quicken their spirits. Let not our mortal fall to the ground today, but let it bring new life and new hope to each of these, my brothers. And Lord, that we know it's you, that we know it's you, let their world tell them there's something different. I feel alive. Let their world minister to them, Lord, that the message you've given tonight be multiplied and multiplied 
and multiplied as men step up and they are no longer afraid to surrender themselves in order that their world may live. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray for the rest of you. I pray, Lord, that, that you minister to them and through them. Lord, let the men at this church foster life in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you so much.